You're listening to the Lost Mountain Podcast. Lost Mountain exists to help all kinds of people find and follow Jesus. We hope today's message encourages you towards a deeper relationship with Christ. If you have questions from today's message, email us at info at lmbc.us. Link is in the show notes. This morning, I want to hear a word uh, as we're together from the Lord about the place of local church membership when it comes to this issue of false faith, this issue of cultural Christianity that is so dangerous to our souls. Um, We'll begin in Ephesians 4, take a little road trip, but we'll stay anchored in Ephesians chapter 4. Uh, Let me read there from verse 17 through uh, verse 24, 17 through 24. Many of you are familiar, we've read just recently the passage uh, in Ephesians 4 just prior to this where Paul talks about some individual positional people that God has given the church so that they might equip the church so that uh, members as they're uh, doing the works of ministry committed to one another in the mission of Christ, the church might be grown up and unified. Paul goes on after that and in verse 17 says, so I tell you this and insist on it in the Lord, that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking. They are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. Having lost all sensitivity, they have given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity. And they are full of greed. That, however, is not the way of life you learned. When you heard about Christ and you were taught in Him in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus, you were taught with regard to your former way of life uh, to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your minds and to put on the new self, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. Now, before I pray for us that God would open his word to us in a, in a very real way, I, I just want to note how Paul opens his letter to the Ephesians. This won't be up on the screen, but I just want to read it for you now, or you can turn back to chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. He starts, uh, as they always did, because you're unrolling a scroll, so the signature's at the top. You can see who it's coming from. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, to God's holy people in Ephesus, to the set-apart, redeemed believers of Christ in the church in Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus. Grace and peace to you from God our Father, in the Lord Jesus Christ. I just want us to be reminded that Paul is addressing his letter to a particular group of people in the city. Not to everyone, but to the local church under the assumption that they know who belonged to their fellowship. They know who were considered to be part of the holy people in Ephesus, the faithful in Jesus Christ, i.e. the members of the first Christian church in Ephesus. 
With that in the back of your mind, let me pray for us. And then we'll continue. Father, your word teaches us that in our own ability, through the own power of our minds, no matter how intelligent or gifted we may be, we have no ability to understand and receive spiritual things. God, but it's only by the indwelling power and presence of your spirit that these things make sense. God, it's only by a gracious and merciful divine intervention in our lives that we truly hear you speak to us. God, that's my plea this morning. Father, that maybe some who've been sitting here week in and week out, month in and month out, would this morning, some maybe for the first time, hear your voice, God, and respond. Lord Jesus, we lift you up. We glorify your name. We submit ourselves under your authority and the authority of your word. Holy Spirit, we ask that you'd move among us. Open our eyes and ears. Help our hearts believe, our minds understand. Meet us where we are. We pray in your faithful name. Amen. All right, as we begin to look at this and why maybe Paul felt it necessary to put this section in the letter to the church in Ephesus, um, I, I want to read again a quote from Dean and Sarah. Um, Sharon told me last Sunday at lunch that it sounds like I'm saying Dean and Sarah. It's not Dean and Sarah, but Dean in Sarah in his book, The Unsaved Christian. Unsaved Christians, and obviously what he's saying here, in the real sense, there is no such thing as an unsaved Christian. But in Sarah wants us to think about this. Unsaved Christians thrive where church membership means nothing and is available to all without any changing the day after you sign up. Now, um, we have been honest and faithful here over the last several years to talk about the significance of church membership as we find it in the New Testament, though the phrase church membership is not there any more than Trinity is there. But it is very clear as Paul assigns all of his letters to individuals heading to local churches or to the local churches themselves and with the particular instructions that knowing who belonged in a church, regardless of who might be gathering on the periphery and listening, maybe they're gathering and listening every week, but they're not yet believers, that knowing who it is that belongs to the family of faith was not only important, but it was possible and it was actually consistently known in the New Testament. And Paul begins here, and in verse 17, he says, I tell you this, and I insist on it in the Lord. I insist on it, that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking. In other words, he said, there's all kinds of values, there's all kinds of beliefs, there's all levels of human wisdom and intelligence out there that when the curtains drawn and the end of time comes will be revealed to have been absolutely futile, insignificant, not to have mattered at all. 
Now, why, why is Paul writing this? Why is Paul writing this to people who are already followers of Jesus? Right? Already have been called by God out of the culture around them as a gathered church. One reason is because he understands what we understand, and it's simply this, that meaningful church membership, meaningful church membership guards against false faith. Meaningful church membership guards against false faith because it pushes into and over the sort of individualistic view of my faith is an issue between God and me and no one else. Who is anyone else to say anything about my faith in me? Well, God said everyone who's a believer is someone to say something about the profession of faith that you're making in your life. Here's what's interesting. If you look at this and you, you go back to Romans 1, because in the, in the back of this is, and more fully is Paul's teaching in Romans 1. You don't have to go there right now. You could look at Colossians 3 as well. But it's this list of things, and he does some listing here. He says they're darkened in their understanding, separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that's in them due to the hardening of their hearts. They don't want to hear. Do you understand collectively as a society we're getting more and more hardened, more and more callous, more and more futile? Those of you who are men and women, let's say, of age in the room, how many of you remember a time when a good amount of what's reported in the news or written in a newspaper right now or on blogs or social media would not have even been said publicly the way that it is now? Anybody remember a time like that? Look at that. Why is that? It is because as a culture, our hearts are being hardened, our minds are being darkened, our souls are being calloused. It doesn't matter to us. It doesn't shock us or stun us. It doesn't seem inappropriate to us as a society, but it should to the people of God. Partly Paul's warning them because they needed it. They needed a reminder, right? We all need reminders or we drift and we lose focus. They needed encouraging I mean, how many of you have already discovered that the days are long, right? But the years are what? They're short. And they sort of seem to pick up speed. I mean, one day you're, you're young and you're fit and cool. One day you're Ian Finley. And then in the blink of an eye, you're buying your clothes where you buy your groceries. <laughs> something's happened. Something's gone terribly wrong. And when you've got something nice to go to, you hit Costco. You like the nice bins in the middle of the store. Didn't even get to the groceries. Was caught up on the $1.99 sweatshirts. Life moves on and it moves on quickly. Paul understands this and understands the nature of us to drift. That's part of why meaningful church membership is so significant. By meaningful, I mean a way of relating to one another, having made covenants to each other like we do in membership class now, affirmed by the church and by members so that we know we belong to one another. And when I become a member of a church, I'm saying my faith is your business and your faith is my business. God has designed it to work like this. It doesn't matter whether you like it or not. For the very reason of the fact 
that part of your soul doesn't like it because you want to do what you want to do when you want to do it. And you don't want anyone telling you that you shouldn't miss every time you sneeze or your kid has something fun to go to. It exists partially, church membership does, to guard against false faith. Mark Dever in The Compelling Community says, according to the New Testament... The church is primarily a body of people who profess and give evidence that they have been saved by God's grace alone, for His glory alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Absolutely. That's why it is a very new invention for the church not to require any evidence of faith to admit people into membership. This historically has not been the case in the local church, regardless of the continent or region you found the local church. They were very cautious about who they baptized and who they admitted into membership. We'll talk more about that in just a minute. Jonathan Lehman in his great uh, little book called Church Membership, How the World Knows Who Represents Jesus, says church membership begins when a local church affirms an individual Christian's profession of faith. That is our responsibility. That's part of why baptism is so significant in the New Testament. It's not an individual right, it's a communal right. It's a local church right. It's one that God gives, and in the giving of it, when I present myself to be baptized, it is the responsibility of the church, however they may do it, through pastoral staff, through elders, smaller churches may do it through the entire congregation to spend enough time with a baptism candidate to believe that the profession they're about to make through baptism is real and genuine as we bring them into the membership of the church. Because the church is not a religious club, right? It's a regenerate community. Now, we'll have all kinds of people sitting here on a Sunday morning, all kinds of people joining us here or there, but the actual church here, Lost Mountain Baptist Church, is its covenant members, is its regenerate center of men and women who've given their lives to the Lord Jesus Christ by the call of God, repented of their sins, and committed to one another under the Lordship of Christ. To love one another, to care for one another, to forgive one another, to serve one another, to share with one another. What I want to do now is take you guys on a little biblical road trip. Now, I'll tell you, we're going to spend more time on this first point due to this than we are the last two. So when we get here and we move on to the second point, don't think, oh gosh, I'm going to miss the game, right? I know where we are time-wise. But I do think it's very, very important that you and I get an understanding of the different ways that the New Testament presents coming to faith in Jesus, becoming a Christian, moving from a non-Christian to an actual Christian. Because I think we we have a few words and phrases around what it means, uh, many of which aren't actually found in the Bible. So I want you to, if you will, place your heart and mind before God. And let's look at what it means to come to faith in Jesus Christ to to move from unredeemed to redeemed. Both how we're instructed to do that and what the New Testament says about it. So let's start our little road trip here. We'll go back to Mark chapter 1. Mark chapter 1, starting with verse 14. And if you miss some of these, they're, they're in the app. So the verses are... Um, reference in there. 
After John, that is John the Baptist, was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the good news. This was Jesus saying what it meant to become a citizen of the kingdom, to move from death to life, to repent and to believe the good news. Have you done that this morning? Have you repented of your sin? Not the general fallenness or debauchery or wickedness of the world. Have you repented of your sin and believed the good news as the New Testament portrays it? Just in the very next couple of verses, we see a a, a slightly different picture of what it means to come to faith in Christ. As Jesus walked beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and his brother Andrew casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come, follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. At once, they left their nets and followed him. In a sense, the call from Jesus and the one that is most consistent from Jesus in the Gospels is follow me. What does it mean to be saved? What does it mean to become a Christian? It means you are an active follower of Jesus. What does that mean? It means what happens here. You're dropping a certain way of life. You may not change your vocation like they did, but you're releasing your hands from your own plans for your life, your own worldview, the visions and values that have driven you, and you're grabbing a hold of Jesus, and you're going where he goes. And when it comes to life and friendship and love and marriage and relationships and work and money, you're looking at what Jesus teaches in his word, and you're seeking to follow him. Turn over to John chapter 1. John chapter 1, and as you're finding your way, I would just say, have you done that? Have you committed your life to follow Jesus and left behind an old way of life? And said, Jesus, teach me and lead me. Teach me and lead me today. John chapter 1, verse 11. He, that is Jesus, came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. You see this gatekeeper language here. That's why the New Testament writers will say Jesus is the only way. He gave the right to become the children of God. Children born of natural descent, not of natural descent, nor of human decision or husband's will, but born of God. Born by sovereign, the sovereign will of God. So here, salvation, becoming a Christian, looks like receiving Jesus as he's given to you in a way that is faithful to the apostolic gospel given once for all. Have you received him? Have you believed in his name? It's another picture here of what it means. I don't know how to become a Christian. Well, you believe in Jesus' name. You receive him. Flip over a couple of pages to John chapter 3. John chapter 3, verse 1. Now there was a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night 
and said, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher who has come from God. For no one could perform the signs you're doing if God were not with him. Jesus replied, very truly I tell you that no one can see the kingdom of God unless they're born again. Jesus gets right at to the reason he knows Nicodemus is coming to him anyway. Nobody can see the kingdom of God unless they're born again. Now, Nicodemus actually hears this by the grace of God. That's why he's so shaken up. And in the next verse he says, how can someone be born when they are old? You and I can't hear this this way because we have centuries of born-again language. We have a file in our brain for this, a framework to think about it. Nicodemus asks, surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born. And Jesus begins to, to work this out. And it's in light of this that John 3.16 comes. We act like often John 3.16 was just dropped down from God out of nowhere. But it wasn't. There's a conjunction, a connecting conjunction at the very beginning of John 3.16. Four. Four is connecting it to what's just happened. Jesus works this out with Nicodemus and he says, hey, you can be born again because the Son of God is going to be raised up, crucified, resurrected, and ascended. And that's going to happen because God so loves this world that he gave his one and only Son that whoever believes in him. Again, we see this believe in him language. I got to pick up speed here. Acts chapter 2. Less exposition and more reading. Acts chapter 2, verse 36. Therefore, Peter says in the first Christian sermon, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart. This is a, a Holy Spirit-produced plea where they understand their sinfulness, their guilt before a holy God. Instead of Peter and the other apostles' brothers, what shall we do? Peter replied, repent and be baptized. Every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ. In the name of Jesus Christ, and you will receive the Holy Spirit. This promise is for you and all your children, and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. Friends, if God doesn't call you, you've got no chance of responding to Him. But when we look here, and if you only looked here, you'd get confused and off track. And doctrinally impure, like some of our brothers and sisters do, who say you have to repent and be baptized to be redeemed. But this isn't the only place where God talks about this. Turn back to uh, Acts chapter 13. Acts chapter 13. Paul and Barnabas are teaching on a Sabbath. The Jews get their feathers all ruffled. They begin to contradict what Paul's saying, and they slander his own name. And verse 46 tells us of Acts 13, when Paul and Barnabas, then Paul and Barnabas answered them boldly. We had to speak the word of God to you. Since you reject it and do not consider yourselves worthy of the eternal life, we now turn to the Gentiles. In other words, God sent us to speak it to, to the Jews first, right? They've got all the background to it. They are, in a sense, the covenant people of God as God is renewing that in a new covenant under Jesus Christ into the local church. But hey, if you're not going to have it, we're not limited to you. For this is what the Lord has commanded us. I have made you a light for the Gentiles that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. Now look at 48. When the Gentiles heard this, 
This is a significant phrase biblically. This is not just an auditory kind of acknowledgement of something. This means they, they heard it as a word from God to them. They were glad and honored the word of God. And all who were appointed for eternal life believed. Here, salvation looks like believing. It doesn't say in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. We know that's what's going on. But that wording is left off. But it looks like this. It looks like upon the hearing of the news of salvation possible in and through Jesus Christ, they were glad and honored the word of God. Have you experienced that? Have you been made glad? Have you brought, been brought by God's mercy to a point where you want to honor the word of the Lord? This is part of what it means and looks like to be saved. Turn over to chapter 16. Chapter 16, a story familiar to many of us, Lydia's conversion. Uh, Lydia was the first uh, individual converted in Europe. Verse 13, on the Sabbath, on the Sabbath, Paul and his party went outside the city gate to the river where we expected to find a place of prayer. That's, that's where people would go and would organize until there were enough Jewish men present to organize a synagogue, and then they would move into uh, a synagogue atmosphere. We sat down and began to speak to the women who had gathered there. One of them, uh, one of those listening was a woman from the city of Thyatira named Lydia, a dealer of purple cloth. She was a worshiper of God. So she was responding to what she knew of God, but the, the pieces weren't all there yet. The Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. And she and the members of her household were baptized she invited us to her home. If you consider me a believer in the Lord, come and stay at my house. Let me ask you this morning, has the Lord opened your heart to respond to the message of the gospel? Has he? Has that happened in your life? Look over one chapter at chapter 17. Very different atmosphere. Paul is in Athens now. He's in Athens now preaching. Uh, to very intellectually, very academically gifted Athenians. Look at verse 29. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone. In other words, since we've been made in the image of God and we understand what it means to be human being, we should not think that God is something that we can make through our own design and skill. Verse 30. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. What does it mean right here to become a Christian? It means simply to repent. There's so much involved in that, though, as we're seeing. That involves the Holy Spirit of God coming and opening the eyes of our heart to understand who we are and who God is, who we are in relation to him. But that's all Paul says here. God commands everyone, everywhere, to repent. Go over one more book to Romans chapter 9. Romans chapter 9. Don't worry, we won't hit every book in the New Testament. We're, we're winding down. We're like the pilots who come on and say, we've begun our descent. You're like, I fly enough to not be concerned about that. I know we've got a solid 40 minutes left. Romans 10, 9. The apostle Paul says, if you declare with your mouth Jesus is Lord 
and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So here, this is what becoming a Christian looks like. That you confess with your mouth, you declare it. In other words, it's almost a statement of news to the world. Jesus is Lord. Which God's Word tells us we, we can't say without the enabling power of the Holy Spirit already entering in to our lost and depraved life. And we've got to believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead. In other words, we have to place our trust from the center of our being in the finished work of Christ. Man, have you done that? Do you confess Jesus as Lord? Not in just a general way. Jesus as your Lord. Lord over all the heavens and earth and the Lord over your life, the master, the one who calls the shots, the one who determines your values, what you do, where you go. Do you believe in your heart and trust in the finished work of Christ? So it's not saved by grace and then sanctified by your own efforts and work. It's the finished work of Christ from beginning to end. Paul goes on in verse 13 and says, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So here, if somebody says, what do I need to do to become a Christian? You can biblically, faithfully say, call upon the name of the Lord. Call upon the name of the Lord. A couple more. Ephesians chapter 2. Go back close to where we started off. Ephesians chapter 2. Verses 1 through 10, Paul gives us this visceral picture of what it looks like to have become a Christian. As for you, you Ephesian believers, members of the Ephesian church, you were dead in your sins and transgressions. See, this is not what our society teaches us today. Our, our society teaches us you may be sick, you may be undereducated, you may be ignorant, you may need some help, you may be in need. Right? You may need medicine, you may need counseling. What you don't need is rescuing from your sin. What you don't need is repentance and forgiveness. But Paul says you're dead as dead can be. You're the walking dead just without the weird gnawing teeth and falling off skin. You're dead in the transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. Isn't that amazing? We don't think we're following anyone else when we're not Christians. We just think we're doing our own thing. Paul says that's what you think because you're spiritually deceived and your understanding is darkened. But what you're actually doing is following the spirits and principalities that make war on your own life and soul, and you don't even know it. They're whispering to you. They're forming your values. They're affirming all the things that you want to do that really exalt you and yours. Verse 3, all of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh. Flesh here doesn't just mean that I'm thirsty and I need water. The Greek word sarks is a picture of our, our sin nature. And following its desires and thoughts, like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. We don't think that either today. We don't believe. I mean, we believe some people deserve wrath. We don't believe we were deserving of wrath outside of Christ and outside of Christ would be today. We don't believe our sweet little aunt who isn't into all this Jesus stuff, but she really supports the environmental uh, charities and, and save the cats and things like that. We don't believe she's deserving of wrath. 
but because of his great love for us. How do you see God this morning? This is how Paul sees him. Because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ. What does it mean to become a Christian? It means God has made you alive. Has that happened to you this morning? Are you one who can say, I once was lost, but now I'm found. I once was blind, but now I see. I was dead, but now, by God's mercy and love, I've been made alive. And this through faith. Verse 8 says, so if you just look at this, what does it mean to be redeemed? It means to be made alive by God when you were dead, and that through faith. Philippians 3, Philippians 3, just turn over one more book, God Eats Popcorn, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. Ephesians 3, verses 7 through 9. Paul's own testimony and how he has under, come to understand salvation at work in his life. He says, whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss. In other words, whatever I've had to give up for the cause of Christ, whatever I've had to give up to live for Christ, and church, I can tell you, we've not had to do much as Americans by way of giving up to follow Christ, but that time is quickly coming. That time is quickly coming. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Paul would say here, to be redeemed, to be Christian, is to know Christ Jesus, your Lord. You know him personally. Not of him, but you know him. Do you know him? Do you know him this morning? Do you talk with him? Does he speak to you through his word? I consider them garbage, rubbish, rubbish, dung, that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Is that your testimony this morning? What does it mean to be saved? It means that you've gained Christ and you're now found in him. That's why his righteousness is now your righteousness. Why his victory is now your victory. Why his death on the sin is attributed to you and your sin, if you're a believer, has been crucified. It's not that it's just let go, it's that it has been punished now in Christ. One more, Titus chapter 3. No, two more. We'll go first to Titus, though. Titus chapter 3, just a couple of books back further. Titus chapter 3, verse 3. At one time, we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived, and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy. Now, I want you to understand this. Um, regardless of how many of these specifically, individually, you would agree with, to understand Paul's theology, you've got to understand that there are only two categories of human beings. Those that are still in Adam and under the curse of Adam, what theologians would call total depravity. It means in one sense you're about as bad as you can get. Every part of your faculties as a human being has been corrupted and tainted by sin. Your will your emotions, your intellect, all of it. Or you're in Christ, the new Adam, the one who chose not to sin, the one who's lived faithfully. We lived in malice and envy, the end of verse 3, being hated and hating one another. But, verse 4, beautiful conjunction, but when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. 
What's it mean to be saved? First of all, it means you didn't do anything. God appeared in your life on the landscape of who you are, and he saved you. Not because of righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth. What theologians would call regeneration, what the church has come to understand as regeneration. And renewal by the Holy Spirit. Have you been washed this morning? Have you experienced the washing of rebirth and the renewal in Christ? Where all of a sudden, God wasn't just something or someone you knew, but someone you have affection for now? God in Christ is your delight, your joy, and your pleasure by the Holy Spirit. Last one, 1 Peter 2. First Peter 2, I'll just read 9, verses 9 and 10 for time. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession. Can I say this morning, church, if you have been redeemed through the faithful work of the Lord Jesus Christ, this is how God sees you, as his special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you'd not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Are you this morning part of the people of God? Or do you simply hang around them watching knowing you're not there. Requiring regenerate church membership, making sure to the best of our ability that those joining the church are genuine followers of Jesus means that we're more concerned with someone actually understanding the gospel and living faithfully for Christ than we are about simply adding numbers. Let's roll on now. Meaningful church membership also enables fruitful discipleship. And we'll move pretty briefly and quickly here. Fruitful discipleship. This is what Paul is getting at in Ephesians chapter 4. He's saying, if you're disciples of Christ, you may no longer live the way that you did before. He picks that up in verse 20 and says, that, however, is not the way of life you learned. And he goes on there. Um, the demands of, Christian, of the Christian life, the demands of discipleship expressed in covenant community within a local church only begin making sense when you're truly born again. If you don't have the Spirit of God living in you, it doesn't make sense. You might drop in here consistently on a Sunday morning, but that's about it. Because the, the, the demands of community life together and relational sacrifice and financial sacrifice and time sacrifice, that doesn't make any sense to you. You're not about that. John Stott said this. He said, uh, the call, and this will be up on the screen, but what a great quote. The call to the Christian life to salvation as it comes to us from God is a call to believe the gospel, repent personally of our sin, and follow Christ with others as his disciples. What a thorough and beautiful picture in a simple sentence like only Stock could do. Lehman again in church membership says, the local church enables the world to look upon the canvas of God's people and see an authentic painting of Christ's love and holiness, not a forgery. And the local church lays down a pathway with guardrails and resting stations for the long journey 
of the Christian life. It should be very difficult, and I hope it is, and I hope it becomes more so, very difficult for cultural Christians with a false assurance and a false faith to attend our services month after month after month without either coming to faith in Christ and being baptized or leaving for a less gospel-centered church. It's not that we don't want to be welcoming. We do, but we don't want to affirm a faith that's not real. Last, or lastly, meaningful church membership empowers faithful witness. Meaningful church membership empowers faithful witness. As, as Paul is writing here in chapter 4, he says, That, however, is not the way of life you learned when you heard about Christ and were taught in him in accordance with the truth that's in Jesus. You were taught, all, all of this is that previous kind of discipleship-looking relationship that exists in a community of faithful Christ followers. You were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires. And in place of that, to be made new in the attitude of your minds and to put on the new self created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. Friends, when this happens, the people around you notice. They notice that you're doing different things with your time. You're doing different things with your money. You're laughing at different things. You're taking your kids different kinds of places. They notice. Paul is basically saying here that there actually is a true and distinct difference between the saved and the unsaved, the redeemed and the unredeemed, the true Christian and the cultural Christian, the follower of Jesus and the fan of Jesus. It brings to mind a, a common phrase of, of Mark Dever that the church is the gospel made visible. That's why meaningful membership matters so much. Because if we're going to be a church that makes the gospel visible, as we're called to do, go back and look at Ephesians 3. As we're called to do, we're going to have to do that as regenerate men and women committed to one another under the lordship of Christ. One more quote this morning from in Sarah. Unbelievers know, listen to this. Unbelievers know when their friends who claim to be Christians don't take their faith seriously. They may run with you and have fun with you and go everywhere you go on vacation with you and drink with you and play with you, but in their hearts, they know that something's off with you. It is detrimental to the mission of God in the community when unbelievers see little distinction between themselves and friends who are associated with the church. What you do is affirm to them then that there really isn't much distinction. They're two or three times a year church involvement. Them saying they're Christian and just meaning they're not Muslim or atheist or something else. It's not really any different than you because you do a claim to be associated with the church. You do a claim to be a legitimate Christian, but like your rhythm and, and your pattern of life, it's just the same as them. For many churches and many people in our culture, church membership means little more than the church than the church you're going to say you attend on Sundays and do attend sporadically on Sundays until you decide to leave and attend another church sporadically on Sundays. But I want to leave you with this challenge this morning. If you've been attending here for quite some time, if you've been attending here for quite some time, and you're not a member, can I just graciously, pastorally ask why? 
And I hope you'll think about it. I really do. Because you're called to be if you are a Christian. What are you holding out on? What's the stumbling block? I pray, and I've prayed this morning, that God through his spirit will make the real answer to this question clear to you in a way that's helpful. As our band makes their way up here and begins to get set up to lead us in a time of response and reflection, I just want to leave you with these, with these questions. It's kind of a, a checkup, a litmus test on where we are with Christ, given what the New Testament teaches about what it means to be a follower of Jesus, living this out in relationship with others. Are you, are you committed to believing sound doctrine? Faithful teaching, biblical truth, no matter how uncomfortable it may be in our value-fluid culture. Are you committed to practicing Christian community? That just means living as a disciple of Jesus with other disciples of Jesus. So that you can say, I've, I've got all kinds of friends, but my best friends, those I'm doing life with, are other disciples of Jesus. Because our cores are the same. Our values are the same. You'll find that to be true always. That whoever I'm doing life with, enjoyably, is really who believes largely what I believe. Their, their value center is my value center. Are you committed to striving for holiness in your personal and public life? Finally, are you committed to serving the body of Christ? as we are called and instructed to throughout the New Testament. The body of Christ, your local church, through primarily the exercise of your spiritual gifts in regular ministry to the body and the giving of your tithe and financial gifts in faithful obedience and generosity. Or is this simply the place you attend so that you can scratch the God-given itch in your soul until you move on to another church. I hope not. I pray not. I pray that this will not be an area where we make it easy to flourish with false faith, to confuse cultural Christianity for biblical Christianity. Let's pray. God, our Redeemer and friend, we look to you as the one who sanctifies us and purifies us. God calls us to unity, maturity, and purity in Christ Jesus and relationship with one another. Father, this morning, I ask boldly and I plead with you to show us honestly, all of us, where we are before you, that we might repent of our own sins, our own sins. And declare with the voices of the church throughout the ages, Jesus is Lord. Father, by your grace, mercy, and instruction, may we be a church that takes our community life, our discipleship, and our membership seriously. Strives to be faithful to you. God, as we prepare now to receive offering as an act of worship, a declaration tangibly of our trust in you and of our value in you as the most important thing in our life. 
I pray, God, your blessing on those who give this morning, who've given throughout this week. God, increase your work in them. Fill them with joy. God, I thank you for them. As these buckets are passed and financial gifts are dropped in and connection cards are dropped in, God, I pray that all these would be received as an act of worshipful offering to you. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. For more information about Lost Mountain, visit us online at lmbc.us. Thanks for tuning in today.